Bob Murphy Show, episode 289. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. Today, you're going to get to watch me basically get taken out to the woodshed. So Gene Epstein was a hot tamale when he saw my discussion with Warren Cass. Well, specifically, he first saw my discussion with Vance Jin on Vance's podcast, Let People Prosper. And in there, we briefly alluded to the fact that, oh yeah, on the right, there's like these little civil war going on and we dogmatic free marketeers should at least be more sympathetic and receptive to the complaints coming from the conservative types, the traditionalists, or whatever label you want to put on them. And I mentioned how I was having Warren Cass come on. So I think that's what got Gene's ire up. And then he went and watched my interview when it dropped with Warren on, here on the Bob Murphy Show, which was episode 283, if you want to go look at that. And Gene was quite disappointed in me. And so he wanted to come on the show to explain to all of you folks why this was a rare occasion in which I let you down or in Gene's framing. So I'm being a little bit cheeky, obviously. He does raise some good issues. So by the way, I am not completely throwing in the towel. And the fact that on some of these things, I didn't like go to the barricades against Gene doesn't mean I was agreeing wholeheartedly with everything he was saying. But in any event, I think it is useful for you good folks to hear the rest of the story. Okay. Uh, let me, in case you don't know who Gene is, I'll read a little bit from his bio here. He is an associate scholar at the Ludwig von Mises Institute down in Auburn. He got his BA in Brandeis University and MA in economics from the New School. He actually taught economics at St. John's University in the City University of New York. I think many of us came to know him when he became the economics editor and a columnist for Barron's Magazine. I think that started in 1993, that position. And then in 2006, he had a book come out called Econo Spinning, in which he documented ways in which economics commentators, including such luminaries as Paul Krugman, misused statistics when they're making arguments about economic policy. And so that is particularly relevant to today's episode when Gene is going to go through and say, for example, that the data series on a certain type of compensation in the United States, it's dubious and nobody should be using it and I should have known better, that kind of thing. Last bit I'll mention is Gene also started the Soho Forum, which is based in New York City. It's actually not in Soho, since we're getting real technical here, Gene. So how about that? It's a geography spinning, by which I mean it's not south of Houston Street. And there, I think it's monthly, if they have the topics lined up, debate series. It's, it's excellent. I just love the idea, and a lot of great debates happened. I'm going to, by the way, folks, comment on the recent debate between Stefan Kinsella and Corey DeAngelis on so-called school choice. I don't like that term. 
Um, so I, that is something that's forthcoming here on the Bob Murphy Show in case you need a reason to live. Well, there you go. So that's what Gene's background is. And here we go. Gene Epstein taking me out to the woodshed. Hope you like it. Gene, welcome back to the Bob Murphy Show. It's a pleasure to be back, Bob, with the guy I still regard as one of my favorite living economists. Don't press your luck like you did the last time to ask about being compared with those dead economists. Not sure that you and I are fit to shine the shoes of Wilpon Bauwerk and Mises, assuming they wear shoes in heaven. But apart from that, Bob, I have to say that I want to start with a cheap joke about that law that's been named after your last name. Another guy mm -hmm. named Murphy, Murphy's Law. I think we're here to discuss a show, Bob, uh, a podcast on the Bob Murphy Show where it's not so much that everything that went wrong could go wrong. It's just that <laughs> a lot that could have gone wrong went wrong. And I'm here to correct some of those wrongs, Bob. And uh, you're a guy who always takes criticism gracefully. And I look forward to criticizing you and to your graceful responses that you were wrong and that you're happy to be corrected by Gene Epstein. It that's was, what we're going to yeah. Yeah. That's what we're doing in this episode, folks. So specifically, Gene's going to be responding to, I had Orrin Cass on, that was back in episode 283. So yeah. if you missed that, folks, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash 283. Yeah. But right now, we're talking with Gene Epstein to respond. So I'm, I wait with bated breath, Gene. I want to know, is it merely just, oh, I let him get away with something? Or did I even add to the error and the fallacies? <laughs> I think it's a fine line <laughs> when you're nodded sagely. But look, God, I'll just say that you let him get away with stuff because you're such a sweet guy. And and I love that saying on your Twitter feed, God loves you more than you can possibly imagine. And I'm going to go easy on you, Bob. I want to start with one point, which is that mm -hmm. obviously I think Warren is completely off base. I actually had him debated the Soul Forum a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. But I want to focus on those things, and they're a fair number, that are practically unequivocally true about how wrong he is, and focus, of course, in particular about the things that you tended to agree with him about when you interviewed him. So, uh, quick, can, can I stop you? Did you say you had him at the Soho Forum? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah well, a you... couple of years ago. He, I'm sorry, it was actually during Zoom time. It was a Zoom okay. debate. And he debated, was it Scott Lincecum? I'm perhaps I'm Bangladesh last Yeah, at Cato Institute. By the way, I wasn't at that point familiar with his abuse of data, uh, which we're <laughs> going to get into. Okay. okay. And with the appalling fact that you fell for it uh, <laughs> and you endorsed it, uh -huh. you said, golly, gee whiz, in your cute way. I didn't know that. I doubted that was true. And then I looked it up. And I found out it really was true. That was you, Bob. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm doing a very bad imitation of Bob Murphy. You, <laughs> you don't sound that foolish usually. So the point, though, is that what is Orrin's message for those who don't want to subject themselves to then Murphy's Law session you had with Orrin? Was it should have been a debate, and it wasn't. That's your concern. Part of the problem, Bob, is that I think you were ill-equipped to debate him. 
and, and which is about that. I guess that that's what I'm about to tell you. Okay, I'm ready. Because okay, you, I'm ready. Because I'm going to focus on data a, a, a good part of the time. He, he's not data driven. He's ideologically driven. And when he portrayed himself as data driven, you, so to speak, nodded sagely about that. For those uh, listeners who don't want to subject themselves to that Orrin Cast interview, broadly speaking, of course, it was really about Orrin's what is it called? The American Compass. His cockpit yeah. organization. Yeah. The American Compass. And he wants us to move in the direction of more government control of the economy because he believes that there are a lot of problems with the economy. And of course, probably what you and I believe, you and I definitely believe, but there are a lot of problems with the economy. And but wherever you look, really the main thing to do is for government to back away. Government is really part of the problem, not part of the solution. But apart from that, he doesn't even have his data correct. His some of his inflammatory data are way off. So my middle-of-the-road view, by the way, is that the economy is not really doing nearly as badly as he said, uh, mm -hmm. but there are still problems. So that's the broad base point. But I want to hone in on the one thing that you may recall, Bob, you did an interview with, now I'm forgetting the guy's name, but you mentioned how impressed you were by this data about wages, this data about wages that is actually called the average hourly earnings of production and non-supervisory workers. And I heard you mention that, and you said, wow, Warren Cass really blew me away. Without badly the wages of the production non supervisory work. Oh, with, with, with Vance Jen when I was talking to him and I was alluding to, yeah, yeah, that's I know what you're talking about. That's yeah, yeah, I was talking to Vance. Right. Vance Jen was interviewing me so, and we were talking about Warren and I said right. that, yeah. So I blew my stack and then I listened to your interview with Warren on Cass because mm -hmm. I guess neither you nor Warren know that data is garbage now. I want to back up and, and make one general point. So many of our fellow economists or fellow Austrians or fellow free market types are just totally cynical about any numbers that come out of government. They're all making it up. They're corrupt. They're in the hands of the plutocrats. I don't care what number you cite from government. They're going to say, oh, it's all bold. Don't bore me with that stuff. Now, you have an illustrious history on that show called Contra Krugman with Tom mm -hmm. Woods. You did a, a terrific book of essays about Krugman. And you are, I think, my colleague who knows how to look at data. You're an Austrian who knows how to make use of data. I, wanted, I, I speak to you then with respect in that regard. However, the, the problem in this particular case is that, on the one hand, we know all those total cynics who won't believe anything the government says. And on mm -hmm. the other hand, I guess even Bob Murphy, if he actually <laughs> looks up the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers and it says production non-supervising workers and it's inflation adjusted, Bob believes it. Now, I then, of course, uh, arrogantly, now, what, what does is, what is Warren Kress say? He actually writes this inflammatory stuff in the beginning there was cockamamie release. What was it called? The famous release from the American Compass. But it talks about how 
Wages have risen by 1% over the past 50 years. And then you said, wow, I didn't believe that. And then I noticed he had the numbers and I looked it up and it's true. So I then said, read my book and you'll find out what the problem is. So we're talking about, I think, an interesting story. It is about data, but it is a funny story. It's about the data that is called average hourly earnings of production and non-supervisory workers. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. and, and, we have, and, and the BLS publishes it. Now, when I published my book in 2006, my book called Econo Spinning, I actually quoted something from the BLS that turned out no longer to be true. In 2005, the Bureau of Labor Statistics announced that they were discontinuing that series, that, 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 that they didn't follow through on their promise, but they announced that they were shredding it. They would no longer publish it. And I then quoted their reason why that non-production, non-supervisory work and work with hours and earnings will be discontinued. And then they remarked on why. And this is really funny to listen to, Bob. They wrote, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the limited scope of the production and non-supervisory worker series makes them of limited value in analyzing economic trends. This is why they're discontinuing it. Just as important to this decision to discontinue, the production and non-supervisory worker hours and payroll data have become increasingly difficult to collect because these categorizations are not meaningful to survey respondents. Many survey respondents report that it is not possible to tabulate their payroll records based on the production non-supervisory definitions. And so they said, we're not going to publish it anymore. They do continue to publish it, unfortunately, but they never revised it. And so they are saying that somehow our respondents don't know what the heck we're talking about. And in fact, as I wrote in my book, what was happening year after year is that portion of the survey questionnaire was left blank by half the companies that were being asked about it. And then this is, the, this is like some of the funny stuff, production and non-supervisory worker. Now, uh, as I jokingly would uh, mention in my column, my employers are spending the last several months wondering what the hell am I? Am I a supervisory worker or am I a non-supervisory worker? They still haven't figured it out. And that's why they haven't filled out that portion of that stupid questionnaire from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And do you know how, how the instruction manual from the BLS read? Non-supervisory employees include every employee except those with the responsibility to supervise. That's a slightly truncated news. It's everybody except those with the responsibility to supervise. I know, Bob, again, I don't know if I'm belaboring the point, but this is the embarrassment. Half the companies were no longer filling it out. Manufacturing companies did have some kind of production cat distinction, and some many of them were filling it out. They had other problems with accountants. They said that accountants should be 
labeled non-supervisory, but then what if there's an accounting firm? So they found embarrassingly that the questionnaires were, re were being returned blank. Uh, and so they had such tiny shreds of data to blow up that it was becoming increasingly embarrassing. And that's why they decided as they wrote that many survey respondents say that that it's not possible to make that distinction to apply those definitions. Now, the one point that I made in my own book, which was to explain why a lot of people were noticing that the data was somehow or other really mired in the mud, were not rising, if you compared it with anything else that you might have known about, such as, for example, the payroll data that come out of the unemployment insurance data. That's the universe, that's the so-called universal account. Why was it lacking? Why was it looking so sick? And stuck in the mud. I knew an analyst who said it's about 1% too low every year or 2% too low every year. It, it's not rising. And then I figured out why. Uh, I, the, the reason it wasn't rising is because the firms that couldn't figure it out were the firms that tended to make fewer distinctions, that tended to offer more stock options to lower level employees, that tended to be more forward looking, that tended to pay people better that had blurred that distinction. So therefore, increasingly, the better paying firms were dropping out of the data. That's why that data was mired in the mud. But then after I wrote this, that they were canceling it, I found to my surprise that they changed their minds. I don't even know quite why, why they continued to run this garbage data. And cut to the chase, cut to the present, Orencast cites the data, Bob Murphy looks it up, and he's impressed. He's impressed by the validity. Now, Bob, have I? Con and now there's more to the story than that because he's also applying the cockamamie price index to this data to add insult to injury. But have I convinced you, Bob, that this data is simply not worth looking at? The Bureau of Labor Statistics itself was going to abolish it because of the embarrassment that they were undergoing in publishing it. Have we at least established that point so far? You've certainly given me enough so that I will go and look at that series versus other ones to what, see that, yes, if it looks you, like there's... What? Bob, what, Bob, what, Bob, Bob, what are you going to learn by looking at that series? Okay. Yeah, you look at other ones, other series. Okay. Then maybe I ought to beat the dead horse a little bit more of lots. Let me just mention, just so people understand, yeah. because yeah, Oren said something like real wages over the last... 50, he might not have said real, so that's misleading, but he well, meant he real wages. Well, he probably said real, because inflation, use the inflation, which we'll get to in a moment, Bob. Yeah. No, but you're missing my point. I'm yeah. saying if he just said wages, oh, wage. that would sound worse than saying real wages. Wages, then you would that's think, what he wrote. That's what he said. Right, whereas, because clearly wages have gone up over the last 50 years in nominal terms under okay. any series. All right. And I'll, so I'm yeah. saying the real, so yeah, I went and checked that particular production non-supervisory, and then I divided it by CPI just to get a ballpark, because I thought it was going to be higher. I was like, are you kidding me? Over the last 50 years, that only went up 1%. That's crazy. And so I'm saying that if you do that on St. Louis website with the official data, yes, it's it's real. It peaks it in 1973. It comes down 20% by 95. So yeah, it looks like over that 22-year stretch, it's just dropping. Then it turns around and then heads back up such that okay, so they, you, you got to get... Right. But, I, but my point though, G, is are you saying... 
more and more firms stopped filling those forms out for 20 years. And then for the next 20 years, more and more started filling them out again. Or you, you get <laughs> no. what I'm saying? It's not no. like it's just a downward. Oh, it's, it's, go, it's a U shape. Okay. <laughs> this, let me just go over one point. All right. Okay. In 2005, February 2005, they said, many survey respondents report that it is not possible to tabulate their payroll records based on the production non-supervisory definitions. These categorizations are not meaningful to survey respondents. Now, that's what the BLS said. That's why we were retiring in 2005. If you're going to be naive enough to believe that they suddenly became meaningful in 2006, then Bob, I have to say that Murphy's Law is applying even in this interview. Everything that could go wrong is going wrong. The fact of the matter is that the instruction manual, non-supervised, what the hell is a non-supervisory employee? Every employee, except those who's responsible. An employee who doesn't supervise, supervise people. What? An employee who doesn't supervise well, well, people. Bob, okay, fine. <laughs> I'll get to the, that doesn't supervise people. Okay, now. I, Bob, I guess part of your problem is that your own personal experience career-wise has been, mm -hmm. I don't know, did you ever work for, look, I worked at Barron's. Was I supervising mm -hmm. people? Yes, in a sense. I could explain how. Was I not supervising people? Yes, in another sense. I could explain how. And, and then these, the payroll people who are given these questionnaires to fill out, they're not getting paid to do it. They see this cockamamie non-supervisory employee. I, I, do, I did have records of how bad this was going, that people were not filling them out. I've got the BLS specifically saying that they're not meaningful to survey our respondents, and you then give me a little story about how the ups and downs of this cockamamie line that they then had to cook up from scanty data uh, that of course you just blow up. You don't have a uh, you don't have a representative sample, but it began to become increasingly embarrassing. That was the case. Now, what else? Did, I'll get into another part of it. They say that those who do not direct the work of others can include lawyers, accounts, actuaries. Uh, they what, what what did they say that even if an establishment can estimate, they had a real problem with what to call accountants, actuaries, and software engineers. They said that they should be regarded as non-supervisory. Again, I guess I'm not going to convince you, Bob. I guess you're actually going to believe that if you look back at the data, you're going to find something. That that if I give you the, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics itself saying that these categories are not meaningful and that, uh, that they've become increasingly difficult to collect in 2005, you were going to say, ah, but... They became increasingly easy to collect in 2006. The, again, I, if you if you if you're familiar with many organizations, who and who is not supervising, and who and who is not supervising is a really difficult question to unravel. It goes back to the left wing traditions of the Bureau of Labor Statistics when you did have guys on the assembly line, and you had the foreman. You had some kind of reasonable definition. That was That's why they had mm -hmm. production workers. That used to have some meaning. But then the rise of the service sector, and then especially the, the rise of the more forward-looking firms who blurred the distinction, meant that they weren't interested. They didn't have a production notion. And then this idea that this is a category with a non in it, this is something you're going to bother to fill out and then estimate. 
If I haven't okay. convinced you yet, Bob, I believe I've convinced. Okay, your so let me. You put your finger on something important. Okay. Oh. And good. so then to gauge, let me use an analogy because yeah, I yeah. want you to see. Because I can tell you think I'm being nuts here. Yeah. Well. Suppose we were charting the average weight of Americans versus Canadians oh, over God. the last hundred years. Okay. And it, it looked like there was this growing divergence, and Americans just kept going up and up relative to Canadians. And on average, every year, the Americans just kept apparently getting heavier than the average Canadian. Well, and then someone said, oh, the reason for that is because the scales they use in Canada aren't as accurate. Okay. So that could explain any one year's discrepancy, right? But if the gap just kept growing, it would be weird to just blame that out of that. You get what I'm saying? The reason so you would why think the gap kept growing, mm -hmm. Bob, is yeah. that the service sector kept growing the, the categories of firms for which then because the manufacturing mm -hmm. sector those sectors where there was some kind of meaningful distinction that people could recognize kept shrinking proportionately so that kept growing and the firms that 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 tended to blur the distinction which were the ones that paid better which actually maybe offered stock options for lower level people were the very mm -hmm. firms that decided this is all we can't spend time on it. That's why the gap kept growing. That but that's why I was bringing up the U-shape. That, that's why I was bringing up the U-shape and the thing that Warren was pointing to. It's that it gets had a lot to do real bad and then comes to the way. Bob, so it's like in my weight example. Bob, it the Canadian-U.S. gap grew and then shrunk. So your thing, like if the service sector grew and then started shrinking at some point. The service sector continued, Bob, and confusing me. I'm talking about numbers. Yep. The nominal numbers. But you're talking about the you're talking about now the CPI adjusted numbers, which are on another level, which I was about to get to. The fact of the matter is that the curl cues you're talking about are CPI related. You'll you won't see that kind of decisive pa pattern anyway. But really, what I did actually in my book, Bob, was I took the what's it called, the quarterly report on earnings. As you mm -hmm. perhaps know, the unemployment insurance claims numbers are thought of as a universal count. They aren't really. They're 98% of the story. Mm -hmm. And so all the companies that are enrolled have got to report wages. And so total wages. What I did was I compared the, the non-supervisory workers' wages with, the, with those numbers, and I found they were increasingly lagging. They were fall, falling further and further behind in nominal terms. In nominal. So the fancy cure cues you're talking about are mostly CPI-driven, which gets to the next level of bullshit, Bob. I, okay. I think I belabored the point about the idea that about the non-supervisory definition that even the BLS admitted that nobody cares about and nobody understands, quoted in my book. They, they retired. Okay. I look, Bob, I, met, I guess I should have done the research. I published the book. And then I remember, I oh, they've kept this bullshit alive. They're still running it. I guess it's backed by popular demand. I don't know. They didn't retire it. But of course, then they started, to, they did start to release something else that is pro problematic, which is average hourly earnings of all workers, which is mm -hmm. also a problematic number, by the way. But that's a different story because it's not something that Orrin Cass quotes. Now, as you probably know, these days, if anybody's remarking on the recent figures on wages, nobody looks at the you no know, at the at this non-supervisory number, at least practically nobody, except of course for the ideologically driven or in casts, 
who managed to gull my friend Bob into believing the <laughs> Okay, but now let's look at the CPI. This is okay. the other funny story about the consumer price index. Now, the, cons the consumer price index is unlike every other index that's been revised by the government, unlike any every other index, it whenever it's been revised, they don't apply those revisions to the past. So it's a discontinuous number. The personal consumption expenditures deflator, the PCE, which is the price deflator used by the Bureau of Economic Analysis that runs the GDP numbers, they decided a long time ago they didn't think that the CPI, which, by the way, was created perhaps back in 1913 by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, because they were talking about cost of living adjustments for workers and then became a real hot item during World War One. But, but the, the consumer price index never gets revised retroactively. Do you know why, Bob? I'm going to give you a little quiz. Why don't they have, when the PCE is revised, when GDP is revised, when anything is revised, because of better numbers, of better concepts, they, they apply all those revisions to the past so that you have a continuous historical series. I, I hope I've explained that adequately to your listeners. That, for example, in the case of GDP, they introduce software into the investment numbers. They introduce mm -hmm. into intellectual property. And properly then, they revise these numbers all the way back to 1947. I think they did, then they did it annually. In other words, so that you have a continuous series. In other words, you change the way you're calculating a, num a number, apply that change to the historical past so that the series is continuous. They don't do that for the CPI. Do you know why? Because mm, certain payments were tied to it and they don't well, want to- Well, you got, yeah, you, that, that's a good clue, Bob. You're on the right track. Because, because alimony payments, union payments, all kinds of contracts that starting in the 1970s began to be tied to the consumer price index. And so there's trillions of dollars that I'm perhaps exaggerating, billions at least, probably hundreds of billions of dollars that are tied to historical agreements based on the CPI. So the alimony, the joke alimony, the maintenance that Joe Blow's wife is paying him or that he's paying his wife was tied to the CPI. If the Bureau of Labor Statistics were, were then to apply revisions to the number, to the CPI, the lawyers would get rich. There would be a rash of lawsuits. The mm -hmm. CPI has been changed. I've been overpaying or I've been underpaying. Right. So that's why the CPI historically cannot be used by people who are data-driven. You use it only if you're ideologically driven, not if you're data-driven. It's a screwed up number. Now, as I'm sure it was in 1996 that a bunch of economists got together and determined uh, under the name of the Boston Commission that the CPI was overstating inflation. And indeed, as you probably know, it was done for politically motivated reasons because they wanted to save a few bucks on Social Security pay payouts and then, I guess, related government payouts because they were tied to the CPI. Now, I happen to believe that the CPI 
still overstates inflation. Maybe, may, uh, maybe some of the argument turns on that, but I'm going to point out that it really doesn't turn on that. So what really has happened is that the CPI is a number that was revised downward starting in the late 90s and into the aughts. And the number that Orrin Cass uses and that you use is also is based upon the old CPI, which was screwed up in lots of ways, Bob. I don't know if you know that the cost of housing used to be tied to the mortgage you paid, and that itself was tied to the mortgage interest rates, which are going sky high. It was a screwed up number. And by the way, the Bureau of Labor Statistics historically always had a very pro-labor bias. And so the CPI really was too high. But it doesn't really matter, because I want to make another general point, Bob. The other general point is this. If you are in cash mm -hmm. and you want to make a case, an argument based upon your idea that the government should do more or that the government should do less, whatever your argument is, the game you play is that when you have a, a, a group of numbers to choose from, you always choose the data that puts your argument in the worst possible light, the data within the plausible range. And Price indexes are a can of worms. They have a lot of problems. There are approximations. But the worst possible thing you can do is use the CPI. And then to top off the scandal, Bob, the scandal of what Orencast did, is that the Bureau of Labor Statistics does publish a revised CPI. They do make it available. They call it the retroactive series. They do mm -hmm. make available, although interestingly enough, it only goes back to mid-1976. So it goes back to mid-1976. And if, by the way, you do want to use the CPI, which I don't think you should, but if you do want to use it, you can at least use it back to 1976 and look up the retroactive series, which is available on the Bureau of Labor Statistics website. I use Haver Analytics data, which is much more convenient. But I found that, let's say Orrin Cass actually knew something about the problems with this data, and it was actually not ideologically driven, but data-driven, and he would have found the following. The research series starts in December 1977, so at mm -hmm. least you can use it to deflate average hourly earnings of non-production and non-supervisory workers. You can at least apply it, if you're at least you're honest with price indexes, to that data. If you actually use the CPI, then from December 1977 to June 2023, the average hourly earnings of these workers went up by 8%. If you use the research series, the rise was 15.1%, nearly double. So if you were honest and at least wanted to consider what are these price indexes really telling you or knowledgeable, now you say, oh, cast complete ignorance, but you should have used the research series. I'm sorry, it's called the retroactive series. They hide it. They don't want to publish it as the CPI because of the lawsuit problem. That, but it is available. Now, the final point about the price index I want to make is that because you've nodded in saying that, if you are honest, data-driven, not ideologically driven, what you really want to do is say, look, when you're dealing with the can of worms, the problems that are all the endless debates about price indexes, you want to use the price index 
that puts your argument in the worst possible light. And there is a very respectable price index called the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. That's what the Bureau of Economic Analysis uses for consumer spending. They use some aspects, and they and by the way, I will tell you that that is a much better index, and I can tell you why, but that, that would take us down different routes. I've had long interviews with a guy named Brent Moulton, who's done studies of price index. Brent Moulton was like third in command of the Bureau of Economic Analysis and also mm-hmm. worked for the BLS. But in the, the data that I've just cited, this the, the average hourly earnings went up by 8%, according to the CPI. They went up by 15.1%, according to the retroactive series, mm-hmm. and by 32.6%, according to the personal consumption expenditures deflator. 32.6%. Four times as much. That's if you're honest. Now, that doesn't excuse his use of the average hourly earnings anyway. This discredited number for for, uh, non-supervisory workers, but at least uh, uh, had he used a proper price index, he wouldn't be able to make these dramatic statements about how wages are in the doghouse. I did another brief number uh, the from 1964 to 2023, which is where he took his numbers. He took he used that day 64 to 2023. The CPI adjusted average hourly earnings of non-supervisory workers went up by 20.4 percent, according to the personal consumption expenditures deflator, 55.6 percent. More than double. Now, I repudiate the number anyway. The average hourly earnings non-supervisory worker number is screwed up for the reasons that I explained. It understates Mm -hmm. for reasons that I explained. I did one other exercise. Now, you understandably went for it and you said, God, we really want to know what the, how well is the proletariat doing? It's a seductive number. It's supposed to be the lower 80%. That tells us what the average Joe is, how he's making out and all that sort of stuff. Are you moving on to a separate point? Because I want to ask you more about these different indices. I was going to move on to a related point, but, but it's probably Can a we, good time for me to shut yeah. up a little bit anyway. And <laughs> you're asking the question. Okay. So yes, those are dramatic differences, obviously. Again, just some what you said, that if you we go from the numbers that are your worst case, you use the plausible, respectable numbers that make the worst case for your argument if you are honest and not ideologically driven. You agree with that as well, Bob? I think for sure, if there's such variability, you should report the different ones. I and just say, pointed out to you, you know, there's great variability, Bob. Right, and saying yeah, it, it, it could range from this to this, depending on which series yeah, you instead, use, something like that. In the that. second sentence, you zap the read the listener, wages well, went up by 1%, which, by the right. way, I, that doesn't even hold up. <laughs> even, I don't know where you got that from. But that aside... That's what you do if you're ideologically driven. If you if if the numbers vary greatly, then you use the numbers that are your worst case uh, in order to make your case. Go ahead with your question, Bob. Okay. So just to make sure people caught that, you're saying from yeah. 19 was it 76 or 77 that that retroactive series starts? Oh yeah, the uh, retroactive series. Yeah, December 77 to June 2023 is what. Okay, so yeah. from December tw- 77 to June 23, using the stipulated production 
supervisory, the series he likes for the nominal yeah, yeah. increase. Yeah. If you just use CPI, then it looks like those wages went up 8%. If you use Which the one? retroactive CPI series, 15.1%, whereas you use the per PCE, personal consumption expenditure, it's one later than 32.6%. That's right. Yeah. So that's showing the dramatic difference. So forget the wage thing, just saying like, a basket of, according to those different metrics, a, a basket of goods. If we're trying to say what's the cost of living, how much has the cost of living gone up? The CPI says it went up a lot. The retroactive said not as much. And then the PCE says even less. That's like the, the mirror image of what we just said. That's correct. Okay. And I will tell you, Bob, that, but by the way, Brett Moulton wrote mm -hmm. a paper for the Brookings Institution, Institute, and he thinks that even the PCE overstates price inflation. And I had a two-hour interview with him, and I think it's an amusing, fascinating look at how difficult it is for the bureaucrats to really price things in. Like, the biggest crazy scandal is that they didn't know what the hell to do with smartphones. The smartphone right. came in so fast. It abolished so many things, from watches to compasses to GPSs, that they gave it no credit whatsoever. They didn't know what to do with the Walmart effect. They didn't know what to do with the Amazon effect. Amazingly enough, these bureaucrats can't keep up with the entrepreneurship of the U.S. economy, and therefore, they are always overstating price inflation. Ironically, yeah. if, despite mm -hmm. what many of our fellow Austrians believe. That's a digression. But anyway. Okay, no, I, but I want to unpack because it's, I want to make sure. Yeah. So for example, yeah. you may remember. Yeah. 20, the financial crisis happens in 2008. Yeah. The yeah. Fed starts doing the rounds of QE. The Fed didn't oh, call it QE. Yeah, yeah. pressed it or whatever. I and others, Peter Schiff, guys like that, we were running around screaming our heads, oh my oh. gosh, price inflation's coming. Yeah. And then this, the official CPI year after year was no big whoop. And oh. so lots of Austro-Libertarians were saying the government is cooking the numbers. That CPI figure grossly understates what real inflation is. I know. I know. And well, so are you saying, okay, in general, no, actually the government overstates inflict, the, the governments make it seem like prices are rising faster than they really are? Yes. By the way, let me back up and say again, mm -hmm. Bob Murphy has it, confessed it, to his bad call about price inflation about right. 5,072 times every yep. opportunity he has, he rents <laughs> his garments because he's that kind of guy. And uh, you've gone to confession, Bob, and I think you've been absolved, say three Hail Marys. Yeah. And I'll forgive you, Bob. Okay. We all know that story. The point is- And you I, don't even think Mary's special. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. But the point, though, is that, okay, I also want to say, of course, that obviously none of these numbers, in terms of recent past, none of these numbers matter too much with respect to the trend. But it, even if you look at, if you look at the, the retroactive series, the CPI, or the PCE, mm -hmm. you'll find, of course- that price inflation really heated up in terms of the trend. Mm -hmm. These things only matter for the long term if you're trying to measure standards of living. You're trying to measure, you're trying to deflate for material conditions of life. Now, I digress about a moment to answer your question. Your question was, what was it really this claim that the government was what was that they were understanding price inflation? That's the idea that they're understanding it. Yeah, I can only say that. The guy who's most famous for these statements, I want to let me not mention him. Those who believe this have to answer, I guess, one question, and some of them have an answer to it. If you believe John Williams that inflation was really running like six percent, 
when it was being mm-hmm. quoted at four by two percent or two and a half percent, then you have to believe that that there's been no economic expansion since two thousand eight, because the nominal gross domestic product right. numbers mm-hmm. are are also deflated by variations of the PCE and variations of CPI. That if you're going to apply a six percent or even a five percent number to nominal GDP, then we've had nothing but economic contraction over the since 2008. I regard that as a reductio ad absurdum because we have so much other evidence based upon employment numbers and so on that there has been an expansion. So that's why at least those who have their estimates for what price inflation is really doing run into a bit of an absurdity. On the other hand, I have confronted lunatics when I say to them, that means that ever since 2009, there's been, we've been contracting by about 1% to 2% a year in the economy. And they say, yeah, that's what's has been happening. No. The employment numbers that are independently derived, I guess business has just been staffing up even though business is lousy and, and contracting. So obviously, the lunatics will always go you one better. But you see my point. That mm-hmm. certainly those who were throwing out estimates of 6% or even 5% were running into that absurdity that they were in effect claiming that, that the economy was contracting. They could also, of course, say the nominal GDP numbers are up. They can make all kinds of claims. But you see, my yeah, point yeah. is that they were a little bit off the G-Ben with their claims. No, indeed, the bureaucrats stick to particular methods. It's a fascinating story. And it gets a little bit funny when, for example, you talk about what the hell could they do with the smartphone? The smartphone is adopted just so quickly and right. it replaces so many things. And, and what does it do to price inflation? It's guesswork. And now, by the way, that's the reason why I, just, I do call price indexes a can of worms. They're, mm. prob- they're problematic. The story I like to tell about the late, great Murray Rothbard is that while on the one hand, he was cynical about price indexes in his textbook, on the other hand, you find that when he's lecturing on history, he has no hesitation to use a price index whenever he needs to. We can't leave home without them, but I like to avoid them if possible. And by the way, there is, and we might get to the way in which I do avoid them in, the, in this particular case, but on the other hand, if you are stuck, then at least use the price indexes that are available and be honest about them, that the personal consumption expenditures deflator has a very different result from the others. The CPI is a joke because it's a, it's a fraud because it's not revised. It's not consistent over time. You should not use it. And yet the Bureau of Labor Statistics does publish it and they do use it to deflate. Or in cast, of course, is happy to use it. What the hell does he care? It gives him the result he wants. Okay, just I, I know there's other things you want to get to, but uh, but I do think we've we've well, talked Ron, a half an hour. We have to about, have a second part of this because we, we, we may have to, we have to inflate the number of episodes saying? devoted but, to this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think to the, if you can just to give it. So, for example. Is it the kind of thing? Like, why are why is there such a discrepancy? It's oh, the CPI in 1976 oh. looked at, okay, this is how much a bunch of eggs, a bunch of milk, a bunch of gasoline, 
what's oh. housing cost, and they, they weight it somehow, oh, and then they look Scott, at that well, basket 20 well, years later. But the PCE is a better index because it's mm. based upon actual business-based records on what people spend. Uh, the, the CPI is a much worse index because it's based upon surveys of people on what they spend. And they leave out a lot of stuff. They don't really have very good recall about how many umbrellas they bought or how many. There's so many, a whole slew of odd items that they can't quite keep track of. So the PC is more accurate for that reason alone. Is the SWAT team coming for you? Is that what that noise is? I said, is the SWAT team coming for you? I hear sirens. Is that on your end? <laughs> you're, well, you New Yorkers don't even hear sirens anymore. You don't even know what I'm talking about. You're, what? <laughs> I, uh, yeah, no, it's Bob. I'm in the middle of Manhattan, and uh, I guess the <laughs> sirens are, I don't know. No, they're arresting a few Austrian economists. I don't know what they yeah. are. Yeah. They're probably arresting somebody for abusing statistics, right? Yeah, yeah. No, okay, okay. So, so that's why the PCE is better for that reason. Bob, exaggerate. I, I, I wish I had brought the data. I could look it up, but it would be too much of a point. It's not the... Uh, no, by the way, I, I, it's not that there's such a vast difference year to year between the PCE and the CPI. And I'm talking about cumulative differences over many years, so that's why the number looks wide and impressive. Mm -hmm. But there, there is a difference. The PC, the PCE also is it, it's got a better philosophy. I could go into that, but that gets into interesting debates, which I believe is a very Austrian issue having to do with what is a good or service? How do you, right. what, what do you really do if a price goes up? I think the PCE is much better developed. Uh, it, it, it was less ideologically driven because the Bureau of Labor Statistics has a huge historical bias in favor of, uh, of labor. And, and, they, and they brazenly publish their numbers deflated by a CPI that they didn't revise over time. So they are brazenly publishing misleading numbers. They're not doing the protocol of imposing revisions to the past because of the lawsuit problem. But I'm sorry, I, it's a wordy answer. You're asking in general. I'm saying that the, the difference between the CPI and the PCE is not quite as vast as I'm implying. It's just that it accumulates over time. And, and the PCE is better devised in part and mainly because it's based upon real numbers about allocation from business rather than impressionistic numbers from consumer surveys. That's a brief answer to the difference oh, between okay, the but, was, but that's what I'm trying to isolate, is yeah. how much of the, those gaps are due just to the techniques for getting data are more solid versus the conceptual approach. For example, a real naive approach would say, oh, how much did a personal computer cost in 1985? Yeah. And yeah. how much did it cost now? And just yeah. look at the change and say, that's how much computers have gone up. Yeah, yeah. Without adjusting for the improvement in RAM and yeah. video monitors and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Or and a then, car in 1960 compared to a car, a car now is well, like signing right. well, the Jetsons compared to a car from 1960. So you wouldn't want to merely look at the increase in sticker price. That's right. But then once you started introducing, I guess they call them, hedonic adjustments, Yes, that's also opening up the genie's bottle. That's right. But th that's why I have called it a can of worms. Uh, mm -hmm. But And that's why, as I say, I, my favorite example is the smartphone. But, but it's just amazing that how quickly the smartphone, that those fold-up phones just got thrown away, the smartphones got adopted. Suddenly, there's so many things that you used to buy that are not necessary anymore. Young people don't wear watches. They've got the smartphone to tell mm -hmm. them the, what the time is. 
The, the, the GPS that had come in was no longer this. So that was a mind blower. But they did even worse when, when the, the kind of dumb things the CPI did. I don't know whether the PCA was implicit, was complicit in this. When Walmart started to sell groceries at huge discounts, they had trouble dealing with that. The, the Amazon effect, they had trouble dealing with. They made mistakes that you, that you would think they didn't have to make. So that's why Brett Moulton will argue that the PCE is even overstated by about a half a percentage point per year. Now, that accumulates a lot over time. The, in his view, the CPI is overstated by closer to, closer to like nine-tenths of a percentage point per year. So, that, so and again, that accumulates a lot over time, despite the corrections they tried to make in it. But again, you do, of course, understand that, that in an entrepreneurial economy, when goods are being improved, when certain goods are being abolished, when nobody buys a watch because they've got a cell phone, what the hell are you doing? You're, and you're making it up as you go along to devise these price indexes. Uh, but there is, a, there is unfortunately a, a bureaucratic tendency to not really keep up with these improvements. And for that reason, it's an, it, the argument is persuasive that all of these indexes do overstate price inflation and that but that of course gets into another argument the, and the bureaucrats are not in league they don't take their orders from the government i did a lot of research into this and i will tell you the last attempt at a, at a real intervention in what the bureau of labor what a agency was doing was under nixon nixon wanted to go after all the jews who were trying to screw him at, at the bureau of labor statistics that's on tape a, a few mm. Jews were fired. He thought it was a Jewish plot to, 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 to publish employment numbers that were making him look unfavorable. That was the last time there was a real threat against a statistical agency. For the most part, they're left alone and they do their thing and they screw up. Uh, they're not mm. really arms of government. The conspiracy theories really do not hold up. Okay, L let me just in the interest for the listeners, because you yes. probably have won a lot over, but in case. Let me pretend to be Orrin Cass, and I'll say three sentences and just let you respond, and then we can go on to the next stuff you want to tackle, okay. all right? So how, what if he says something like, okay, yeah, there's philosophical issues involved, and I understand introducing new technology, it, it's tricky, how do you compare? But what we're trying to get at is there's this, people have this sense that, wow, in the 1960s, it seemed like the husband as a breadwinner could earn enough to have a decent middle-class lifestyle. And yet they didn't have smartphones back then. That's true. But the fact that now when people are going to the grocery store, stuff's super expensive and, and wow, with tuition and healthcare and housing is ludicrous. Like the new kids come graduating that they can't buy a house. They got to, that's just completely unaffordable. And so that's what we get at. And you're right. It's when you get a smartphone, you don't have to now buy a, a what a, a map and, and a globe and a watch and a phone like it's all one thing but that's not counteracting the other stuff we're talking about I, what if he said something like that okay okay now Lauren since you're since you obviously you're an ideologue if one argument doesn't work for you you'll shift ground and you'll make some other cockamamie argument Lauren I guess that's what you like you're doing a very good imitation of Lauren Bob because Lauren posted uh, a chart showing what happened to CPI in the deflated average hourly earnings of production and non-supervisory workers. 
So you use that price index. And all I'm saying is that is that if we want to use price indexes, recognize that you're using a screwed up price index because it's not revised and continuous. Recognize that you're using a non-supervisory number that the beauty of labor statistics itself repudiated at one point because they weren't filling it out because nobody knew what the heck that was. So please understand that if you want to use data, then you got problems. And I was about to say, we could use some data that might be okay. Please understand that if you want to use data, use the data that is available, but that is biased against you because we have real problems with the data. So you've gone for the data that makes your argument look best, and now you're shifting gears, and you want to give me this cockamamie point about, which I've heard before, about how it used to take one breadwinner, uh, and now it takes two breadwinners. Is that more or less what you try to tell me, imitating on? You and I know, Bob, that the answer to that is that the breadwinners in those cases, they that if you want to live, if you want to live the way a family lived in 1955, then your house would be a lot smaller. You should own a junkie car. The lifestyle of a family of four is so much different. If you want to go back to 1955, the house, uh, the houses were tiny. People didn't live in houses. They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have color TV. That's what the breadwinner could support in those days. They didn't have cell phones. They had to pay a fortune for long-distance calls. They couldn't afford to fly in a plane. You're nodding. You know all that. that. That's a bullshit line that we all know is ridiculous. I didn't know you'd try that one on me, Bob. I, I was just trying to stick to the data. You agree with that, right? The old business about the one breadwinner's stuff is a joke. I'm a lot older than you, Bob. I'm pushing 79. And now people lived in the 1950s, years before you were born, Bob. And I can tell you <laughs> what it was like. Black and white TV. No air conditioning in cars. The cars rusted mm. out. It was a fortune to make a long-distance call. I needn't be a dead horse, right, yeah. Bob? One I've noticed, too, is I think yeah. it used to be a bigger deal to, to know how to change a tire because your tires are blown out all the time, <laughs> whereas now a lot of times you can go years without having to change a tire. That's um, an interesting point. Yeah. Okay, yeah, because because the reason I brought that up, though, just so you know, I wasn't trying to ambush you. I, because I was concerned it sounded like you were merely saying the introduction of like smartphones no. or something no. throws off the numbers. And so somebody was saying, I'm talking about bread and butter, meat and potatoes, sending your kids to school, living it. So it's well, not, no, so you're no, bringing up the, the, like the technological includes things like, yeah, like the homes are a lot bigger. The cars obviously are way better. Air conditioning, color TV, besides the, now we're getting Netflix and all this other stuff. Live the on internet. a plane, right, uh, making right. a long distance phone call. Okay. All of those things. Okay, no, indeed. Bob, look, ambush me all you want. No, indeed. No, no resentment <laughs> there. Okay. Obviously. Uh, so we all know this bullshit. I'm just saying that he's got, he said to you in his sonorous tone, I'm data-driven. I'm very data-driven. So I'm just trying to drive the data. I'm just trying to say, if you're data-driven, right. respect the data, understand the data a lot better than you do. And don't make these ideologically driven statements that imply you're not data driven at all. And so 
That's the main thing. We're just talking about data, but because you pulled back and you made that other argument, which indeed is something that we hear all the time about the one breadwinner, now it requires two breadwinners, all that stuff. We've dealt with that as well. We live very differently now. You want to live the way people lived in the 1950s, take away the air conditioning, get a car that's rusted out, get a black and white TV, uh, don't ever fly, all of that stuff. You know that. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now, did you have other well, I had, abuses I had, of data I had you want to bring point, up? Bob, and no points to make. It looks like we need several more hours. No, the only point I was going to make, Bob, is this, that there still is no question, however, and now there's no longer a data point, there is no question that there is greater inequality of wages and salaries today than there was 30, 40, 50 years ago, or 20 mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, I think there is also no question that the two main drivers are government-based. The two main drivers are the imposition of restrictive licensing requirements that has really taken off, and the other, by the way, which is much more important, that impedes the mobility of workers is the accelerated rise since the 1960s in government-imposed rules and restrictions that have made it increasingly expensive to build housing in high-wage areas like New York and San Francisco and to move to these areas. And so there's been a bifurcation. The high-wage people can move to these areas and afford the housing. The middle to lower-wage people can't. So they're more stuck. So it's not just a, a real problem with housing. It's that mobility is impeded and impeded in areas, again, like New York, like San Francisco, where the wages are high. And those and estimates are, indeed, that, 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 that it has had a huge effect. I, I cited these numbers when I was debating this New York Times guy, Benjamin Applebaum, and the numbers are huge. I guess I needn't belabor it for you, but the fact of the matter is that this gets back to the point that government is part of the problem, not part of the solution. And therefore, I, by the way, I did a little data run uh, with non-financial corporations, and I just took the wages and salaries of non-financial corporations domestic corporation, and left out the benefits. And that's, I know, because you had this issue with benefits, which I guess we can get to. But but then the non-traditional corporations, it was just the wages and salaries. And and what I and the reason why I chose that is because the financial corporations have really been rising as a share of GDP, as a share of the labor force, and that's where some of the Jagundis salaries are paid. And so I did mm -hmm. some estimates of that, and I found that there has been an appreciable rise. I thought that was a reasonable proxy for the ordinary Joe. He doesn't get the benefits. But I found there has been, despite all those problems, there has been a lot of progress on, the, on all levels. However, where we do have a problem and where Orrin Cass has nothing to teach us is precisely where government has screwed things up. The, the, the licensing requirements, which indeed, that's cartelization, and indeed, the crony capitalism of, of rental of housing. The fact of the matter is that 
that the inner circle of builders, I should tell you, my wife owns a building. She owns a building that's mm-hmm. not under rent stabilization in New York City. And of course, rent stabilization and rent control does her a lot of good because it takes so much of, of, of the supply off the market. And, and if you want to build, you have to have friends in, in the city. Building is at a standstill. And it's not just then that it creates inequality of housing for the average person. It's that mobility is greatly impeded. With the, if the high wages are in New York City, that's fine, but you can't afford to move your family there. So that's an, that's an important aspect of it that Oren Cass is not the least bit interested in. So indeed, that's where I want to say again, inequality is a problem. It's just that he's looking in the wrong place to try to correct it. So that's my other point. I've got some other points to make as well, Bob. Or do you have a question or two? Well, well, sure. Okay. So that's interesting. I, obviously, I had heard, I've seen the debates over NIMBY, YIMBY, and stuff, and, and building well, restrictions. Based over NIMBY. But I had never seen the point that the way you connected it to just general income inequality. I don't know if that's standard. I've never seen someone make really? that point before. Is that yeah? It's obvious once you said it, but I've never seen that particular point made. Like I said, people talk about how oh, housing is expensive get rid of the restrictions and that's the way of, and people are arguing right now about gee if you build more houses doesn't that attract more people and make housing get more expensive they're doing that they're getting sucked into those debates but the idea of just All right. middle yeah. upper middle class people being able to relocate and then becoming top one percent that i haven't seen well, that. well excuse me i i assume i talk about wages and salaries if mm-hmm. you're a six-figure wage earner and it's a better job the housing will be more expensive, but you can move, and you have. But but if you're if you're a thirty to forty thousand thousand wage earner, and you've got a couple of kids, the problems are far greater. I Ed Glazer of Harmon has been very good on this. The the estimates are huge that the, the cost of workers at a staggering nine percent of gross domestic product. There's been a lot of empirical work on this, Bob. I, and then in case I can imagine, at least you can see that. It's plausible if you that it's true. It's plausible that precisely because the high productivity, the high wage areas are the ones that are being strangled by uh, by housing rules and regs that have driven up mm-hmm. the house price of housing. You see that it's possible to connect the dots. And uh, I'm going to I'm going to be making another point, by the way, where I'm not going to be saying that the this, that I can prove this in an interview. But the other point is that. Having to do with manufacturing, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion of manufacturing. That 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 Mark Mills, a very reputable researcher, has shown that the, the regulatory burdens on manufacturing are, are uniquely heavy, and are the big reasons why manufacturing has been suffering. But Bob, since we may be running out of time, actually, I, I wanted to make I wanted to make a, a broader point because this is the most important thing in a way for me. That where I went, I was really aghast at the way you let this go by when Orrin said, "Okay, okay." The cheap labor statement, Orrin Cass. I was almost going to say, "Let's play it, let's play it on tape." What he said to you because it was unbelievable to listen to. He said, "People are really confused at cheap labor." <laughs> I've got to memorize that. And he said, "What is?" It? He said. Wow, that was cheap labor. No cheap labor. If you pay labor according to its productivity, but then what are you paying labor below their productivity? What are you getting? What are you getting? Really, real bargains by employing those Chinese workers, and that's 
this is something that's strange to us. No, you're getting real progress because those Chinese workers have been suffering for, from the history of, 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 of socialism for so many years that they're eager to take jobs at wages that would be an insult to Americans, but it's a great job for them. So that's what happens to the Chinese workers or the other poor workers abroad who are manufacturing goods for the U.S. And you remember what you said, Bob? You said to him, Orin, so is your problem that these workers are being exploited in China because they're being, do you remember you said that, Bob? You don't remember? Yeah. No, I remember. Yeah, okay. You said, is, it, is your problem that these, these cheap workers are getting exploited? And Orin said, no, no. My problem is that these cheap workers are competing with our workers. Yeah, they're making it harder for our workers to get jobs. That's what I don't like. That's what I don't like about cheap labor. No. And you let that go by. Can and, I stop you for a second? Go ahead. So just so you know, like I have, I was emailing with him. I was going to do a full episode on that because you're right. I think what he's saying there is wrong. Oh. No. What no. I was trying to do, though, was just it was funny because he was explaining why he didn't want to let U.S. firms outsource to hire cheap foreign labor. And then he said, and when we say it's cheap, it just shows they're not being paid as a marginal product. It's actually they're being paid less. Otherwise, it wouldn't be, it would be, there'd be no gain to, to doing it. So that's why I was just trying to be funny and say, oh, so the reason you're not letting U.S. firms do that is you're trying to protect them from being exploited by the, the greedy U.S. employer. I that's see. all I was doing. Oh, you were just I wasn't joking saying, You were just making a joke. Like I was, it was showing within his framework that it was funny that it sounded like he could have been saying the reason I'm trying to protect those poor foreign workers from being exploited by the capitalists going and paying them less than their marginal yeah. product. But then he did have the last word there, Bob. He said, no, he said, it's just, is that it's just unfair for those cheap work, foreign workers who obviously, as you and I know, they're taking those jobs at those chump change wages because those chump change wages look pretty good to them. That's why they're taking the job because it's their best option. Uh, those people in China are taking those jobs, but he doesn't like it. He doesn't want them competing with American workers. And you said nothing to that, Bob. You let it go by. That was okay with you when you said that. Doesn't want them competing with American workers. That's no, what I mean, he I doesn't like. Repeat what I said five minutes ago. I'm going to do a whole episode on that. Yeah, I didn't argue with him. Okay, Bob, I'm sorry. I can review the tape. If it came off that I was said, great point, Warren, I agree 100%, then okay. I should not have said right. that. Okay. Okay. Follow up with I guess we didn't bother with it. My, I'll, tell you, so I'll tell you one. I think this story is interesting. My father became quite wealthy uh, working for a guy who w was one of those Jews in the garment district. Mm -hmm. and, and, and originally, now I'm forgetting the name of the guy who first did this. The Jews in the garment district who had the bright idea of establishing factories in the South in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. And uh, because they could pay minimum wage and it was filled with people who wanted those jobs, and minimum wage was pretty low. And so there was mm -hmm. a huge move down south to establish it at very low wages. And right. so this, of course, would be very offensive to Oren Cass that they did this. Now, obviously, they brought a comparative amount of prosperity to some of these southern towns where they brought these factories since the wages looked pretty good. Because the South was an oppressed area in the 1950s, but this is something that Ron Cass wants to put a stop to. But the only other part of the story, uh, the only real brief repost Oren Cass is that 
What usually happens in a competitive marketplace when when capitalists do what capitalists like to do, which is search out places where the labor is cheaper so that they can fatten their profits, true, but what they usually do is take advantage of the situation by charging lower prices. And that's really the big reason for the much lower price, well, for the very modest price inflation that occurred in the 80s and 90s into the aughts because more and more of these goods were being made in cheap places like China. And that created the Walmart effect. That directly benefited the people of limited means who bought those goods from Walmart. So the good, but usually what, they, what Warren was trying to imply is all they're doing is fattening their profits. No, what, they, what usually you find they do when they find the cheap labor, which does a lot of good for the cheap labor, is that they take advantage of the situation by cutting prices. And that's how these Jewish guys got rich, by the way, selling shirts to the north by going south and having the shirts manufactured by cheap labor in the south. So Oren wants to put a stop to capitalists moving to areas where the labor is cheap. That's pretty horrifying to me. Doesn't it horrify let, let me, you? It's, I don't like it, to be sure. Let me, for the listener who's hearing you and disagrees, let me Explain what their reaction to what you're saying is, and then you, I'll let you oh, okay. address such a person. Yeah. They might say something like, oh, okay, sure, Gene, I get, or maybe they'd say Mr. Epstein. Sure, maybe I understand. Gonna, yeah, I'm being the hypothetical. He doesn't know you. It's a stranger. Professor okay. Epstein to you, Bob. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. He goes, sure, that it helps to have cheap goods in Walmart that are made in China, assuming, you know, it's okay quality or something, but even there. But if I don't have a good job, then I can't. So in other words, there's the, the way they're thinking about it is all the all of our manuf good manufacturing jobs got shipped to China and now I'm flipping burgers at Wendy's. And so, yeah, prices are cheaper in Walmart, but my salary or my wages just went down 50% because my good manufacturing job got outsourced to China. So how does that make me better off? Well, and now I have no self-respect because well, I have well, a crappy job. That's right. Of course, that's exactly no disrespect to people working in Wendy's, by the way. I'm just saying that's what the argument is. I'm glad you apologized to all those listeners who work at Wendy's, Bob. I know you have a huge yeah, yeah. following among them. And, a, and, and you, you really know how to guide yourself. That's your, right. I got to keep everybody in mind. It's yeah, yeah. unknown. Go yeah. ahead. Okay. Well, again, of course, that's what those Jews did, Bob. Charlie Bassin, that was his name. Yeah. He was famous for it. Uh, Charlie Bassin and Salberg, they moved all these factories south and they, and they ruined all the jobs in New York. They moved all these factories south to the Southern workers who were willing to work for, there were minimum wage laws. They, they paid minimum wage far less than they paid in New York. What we have in the 50 United States of America, and this is interestingly a point that Murray Rothman, we've had this huge free trade zone where people can resort and remove and all kinds of awful things happen. If some other podcaster comes along and, and charges less or does whatever he wants to do and Bob Murphy loses his job as a podcaster, I guess we ought to worry about him. The fact of the matter is that if we want to take Orncast's argument all the way, then we should certainly not allow the pursuit of cheaper labor within the 50 United States either. The point then is that 
people do get hurt. Uh, and indeed, a story I like to tell is that when my wife Asaku married me, mm -hmm. you want to know where I'm going with this? A lot of guys I met took an instant dislike to me because they asked themselves, why him and not me? She left a lot of broken hearts behind. So <laughs> you might say, fine, four, mm -hmm. Gene and Nisaku to be happy together. But what about all those guys who could be on the brink of suicide because they lost mm -hmm. the, the marital position that they wanted vis-a-vis -vis the wife who chose me? The fact of the matter is that these are capitalist acts between consenting adults and uh, going down that other road, generally speaking, and oh, by the way, I do want to digress for a moment, because when Oren tried to earn his plaudits with you as somebody who understands free trade it, and the arguments for free trade, he said that, oh, I know the usual argument, the guy loses his job, but he does get a better job. Well, nobody ever said that was inevitable. That he gets a better job. The fact of the matter is that that market capitalism works highly imperfectly, and and some people do do find that if they're in the horse and buggy industry and cars come along, then they don't do as well as they used to. On the other hand, can't we counterbalance that with a poor guy in China or the poor person in the South who got a better job, and then of course counterbalance that? by saying to Warren Cass, which is, which is that if you want to be respectable in my life, then form a website called Buy American Only. And through that website, the only goods and services you buy are made in the United States. Uh, my father and other Jews would not buy German cars 20 years after World War II uh, for reasons that I needn't explain, they're obviously enough, mm -hmm. even though those cars were good buys. My father later would only buy American makes for patriotic reasons. Organize. Don't tell me and don't tell Bob Murphy where to spend our money. The burden of proof is on you. We, we do know that generally speaking, everybody is better off, and we do know that we want to live in a free society of human flourishing, and I myself actually find it I find some pleasure in knowing that a lot of people who are living on $2 a day poverty in China are doing a lot better because I might be buying some of the goods that they've made that are shipped to Walmart. So life is filled with, with trade-offs. But if Warren Cass wants us, the we, he constantly talking about the we want to do this and we want to do that, then organize us all, Oren, become a rabbi and start the synagogue of only buying American and see how many people you can attract to that. Don't dictate to me or to Bob Murphy where we should spend our money. Because there are indeed a whole trail of broken hearts left because of all the women who, who've, who've, who've had a romantic crush on me. I should pay these people reparations. They suffered. Uh, but I fortunately can't. In a free society, people do occasionally suffer. But by and large, in a free society, people flourish, people are happier, it's a more exciting way to live, and by and large, the rising tide does lift most of the boats. Well, I liked how in the original version of your wedding analogy, you were like the poor sweatshop worker that your wife was hiring, that you, 
<laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way, Bob. You're right. <laughs> the book. That's right. I, I yeah. didn't even realize that. So the, the other suitors could say to her, what are you doing? And she's like, look how cheap he is. Come on. This is. <laughs> That's a good point, Bob. Yeah, you're right. I was a point. Yeah. But, but, but I did these guys dirty. And, and, yeah. Uh, that's the other part I'm okay. going to do. Yeah. The point is that, again- Okay, so you certainly- Okay, but go ahead, Bob. Yeah. So joking is, yeah, joking is, I, I love, it's like what you did with the socialism guy you debated and just say, go ahead and no one's stopping you. If you want to organize worker communes right now, go for it. And, and, so that's what you're doing here. That's right. And you're saying if you want to- By the way, and there mm -hmm. is a lot, again, the, the, the amazing story- of the, of the silent boycott of German cars as a sort of unwritten tale that Jews would not buy German cars. It's mentioned in a novel or two with, with this Jewish guy said, look, I'm a very simple person. They kill my people. I don't buy their cars. It was written. Yeah. And, but then, and then my father is suddenly, he reads David Halberstam about how Detroit is in trouble. And the next thing I know, he's only buying at least cars that are American made, although who knows, maybe some of, some of the parts came from abroad. People do respond to that. So I, I wish Oren, if Oren wants to do that, you and I can't object. And, and mm -hmm. he could achieve some partial success by so doing. Of course, I know what they would say, and you alluded to a little bit. They said it'd be hard to police, just like now when you go in, like in the the health food stores, and they've got like fair trade coffee and a lot of that stuff. It's like some liberal organization that gives them the seal, and are they really going and verifying that the crops were picked with above oh, market well, wages or, or, down or, in or Colombia? Blah, blah, blah. So data driven that I imagine <laughs> nobody's yes, going to be able to he, put anything up on him. No, because yeah, the or yeah, American Compass could just become a, a certification organization to say this industry or this firm is sufficiently sourced from and, American products, and they get like some, they get a few followers too. Mm -hmm. I know, so I think it would work out in the end. But no, I just wanted to go after Warren about that basic point that you were trying to characterize Warren in your in a slippery way, where you're saying, "Oh, Warren is hip to the arguments about free trade." He's really one of us. You're almost implying that, Bob. That's where I'm berating you. And you say, oh, but he's got a slightly different view. His nuance is different. No, he's off the deep end. You can't employ cheap labor. I object because you've got to pay the more expensive labor. That's what the people who frequent Walmart have to do. They can't. Walmart has no right to import from China and sell cheap goods to, to those people who are the main beneficiaries of of that. The rich people who go into Walmart, but excuse me, not really the rich people. By and large, it's the people of limited means who benefit from that. And so it, it's a win from that standpoint, but not as far as Oren Cash is concerned. No, you can't pursue cheap labor because that's enough for him, because that's unfair to the, to the guy who's overcharging for his labor compared to the cheap labor. So I wanted to make the point, Bob, that you misrepresented Oren as though he was on the same wavelength, but as a sort of a different nuanced twist on things. No, he belongs to the other side. And a guy who will opine about it, we want manufacturing, we want this. He uses we so many times to include you and me. He's clearly, and he belittles freedom. Look, we libertarians are not, we're not pro-consumer. We're not pro-worker. I, I like the term from Alex Epstein, who has no relation, 
you in flourishing under freedom. That's what we want. We want people to pursue the jobs that they prefer. We want people to pursue the goods that they prefer. And the free market is a highly is the worst way to do that, except for all the others. Warren Cass wants government heavy hand to, to impose itself on those free choices because he likes to use the word we to confuse us with what he wants for us rather than what we want for ourselves. I'm, I was going to make a, a couple of other data points, but one in particular that I've I, I become semi-famous for, Bob, although maybe not famous for you, which is that that Orion's got all these cockamamie lines that go off into space. And one of them, by the way, is obviously rigged. He uses what after-tax earnings, after-tax profits, which is a purposely skewed number in his chart. But the productivity issue, the productivity issue is an interesting one. I guess it gets us into compensation and and benefits. But at least I want to make one point, broadly speaking, that there's a whole slew of charts showing that labor compensation has not kept up with productivity, whether it's non-farm, non-farm business, manufacturers not kept up. And the charts are released by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's the worst scandal from that statistical agency. And the only reason why they get that result is because they cook the books. They use two sets, two very Mm -hmm. different sets of deflators. They deflate the output productivity side by a very mild deflator, the implicit play, and then deflate the compensation part with the punishing deflator of the consumer price index. They use it, even though, again, it's not continuous. And so they get a divergence. All I did with all of those numbers is take the deflators out. You have to do a little bit of manipulation. It's not that difficult. I've turned them all into nominal numbers nominal dollar numbers. So a nominal dollar output per worker hour, output is after all sold in nominal dollars year after year, a nominal dollar number Mm -hmm. for compensation. Workers are, of course, paid in nominal dollars year by year. And so they're just nominal dollars tracking each other year by year over the decades. And I find that once you render them in nominal dollars, the two lines track each other. That, that this whole myth mm. that labor has not been paid according to its productivity arises from the fact that one number is being clobbered by the consumer price index and another number is being mildly deflated by the implicit price deflator. It isn't true if you use nominal dollars. And uh, so, of course, Aaron makes the assertion that productivity is taken off, wages have gone nowhere. Not at all true. They have actually kept pace with each other. Now, of course, I am including all compensation. I'm taking, by the way, the Bureau of Labor Statistics numbers on compensation. The Bureau of Labor Statistics uses all levels of compensation, the well-paid and the poorly paid. So it's it's the aggregate number that they use. Mm -hmm. And of course, they also include in compensation benefits, and that's where you had a huge, a little bit of an issue. Maybe we could discuss it, or maybe you want to finesse it. But I'm only making the point that that despite the inequality issues that I mentioned, which are very real, and certainly, again, the housing issue is a very real problem, 
anecdotally, you read about it all the time. The estimates about it are very real. We need to fight. We need to fight the housing issue. And Ed Glazer, by the way, of Harvard, is quite a firebrand about this and sees ways and is trying to organize to get people to, to fight the NIMBY issues and get the progressives who, are, who believe in the NIMBY to understand what they are doing, how they are shafting low-wage workers through their own policies. All that's true. Mm -hmm. However, the broader compensation numbers on all levels do trap productivity. If you simply eliminate the scandal of using two sets of books, one mild price index and the other a very punishing price index, just turn them into nominal numbers and lo and behold, the numbers are tracking each other. Labor is getting its productivity mm -hmm. gains. That's what I have found uh, simply by turning them into nominal numbers. So I thought that would be interesting news in and of itself. Anything else you want to discuss, Bob? So, right, I have seen that issue yeah, that I got for people at home who didn't quite get. Gene is saying that when you see it, and these are, this is, goes back before Orrin Cass came on the scene. Oh, yeah. Like the, Good what place. they're called. There's some, there's some, is a new economic, I forget what the name of the outfit is, but there's some left-wing organization that's been around for a while that has the ostensibly are like full I mean, worker and they, yes, those guys. Yeah. yeah okay. they, they've had these charts out for a decade plus. And what I know. Go ahead, Bob. Go ahead. Yes. Okay. So I'm just saying that, yeah, they would show these charts, show what they call labor productivity and then versus wages and, 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 or compensation even. And it would, and it would diverge. And then they would say, oh, look at, and you get the sense that it was like blamed on Reagan or something. But what was funny is if you looked at their actual chart, the divergence starts in the early seventies. Oh, yes. And so I was going to say, that's clearly not because of Reagan's tax cuts for the rich. No. So no, okay, like no. I, I was saying, I could make the case that Nixon going off the gold standard screwed things up. Okay. Bob, I guess you really, with all due respect, you're right. <laughs> the divergence starts in the early seventies. Yep. But with all due respect, you haven't listened to me. It's all because mm. of the cockamamie price indexes. There is no divergence starting right. in the early 70s. It's that the CPI started to take off in the 70s, and, and they're clobbering right, right. compensation with the CPI, and that the implicit price deflator having to do with the good side of the output is much milder, and you see this divergence. Just take away the price indexes and turn them into nominal numbers, and there's no more divergence anymore, either in the 70s or in the 80s. They pretty well track each other. That's the point I'm making. It's all because of the scandal. And what's my logic? My logic is that, that nominal numbers are good enough. Every year, goods are sold in nominal dollars in 72, 73, 74, 75, and workers are paid in nominal dollars. I'm, nominal, I'm lining the nominal dollars up year by year, and I find that the increases pretty well track each other. And, but only if you use these two very different price indexes do you get the result that people are constantly looking at. And the thing that's most scandalous is that I can be easily refuted because somebody can go on the Bureau of Labor Statistics website and show that chart. But the chart is based on divergent price indexes. Now, if you want to make the point that something was interesting to happening to the prices of these outputs versus what consumers were paying, that's a different 
level of discussion. The, the discussion is really, were capitalists pretty well paying workers in accordance with their productivity gains? You light up the nominal numbers and you find the answer is yes. That's the point. The, the whole, I spoke with Brent Moulton of the Bureau of Economic Analysis, and you know what he laughed about? He said, yeah, they look at these numbers starting in the early 70s, and you've seen this output is taking off and wages are going nowhere. And they never ask themselves, my God, profits must be a thousandfold. Where's all this fantastic largesse going? Brent Moulton said, they can't find it, they can't, but, but they believe in the crazy price indexes. Two different prices. Again, nominal numbers mm -hmm. show the, the, the capitalists were pretty much paying the workers in accordance with their productivity gains. That's what they're arguing, that the exploitation took off in the early 70s. That's the argument. And it's all based on the bullshit use of two different price indexes. You're making a different point about Reagan. I could, I, by the way, I've got some interesting Reagan stories. We may not have enough time to go into it having to do with the share of, of like, so I think the, I think the way to reconcile what we're saying is I was just saying, if you do think there is some fundamental qualitative thing that happened, it certainly didn't start in the eighties, according to their own charts. It happened in the seventies. Well, so like Bob, what could explain why Bob. the whole labor market's trajectory? Well, but what you're saying though, is no, the way to explain it is because price inflation started really growing, you know, in a volatile rapid fashion after Nixon went off gold, CP, and that's CP. why if it's if the divergence is due to what you're saying, it it jumped in the 70s and not in 1955. Interestingly enough, but you didn't put a fight of enough point in it. You've got two series: output per worker hour and compensation per worker per hour. Now, you take the one series compensation and you collaborate with the CPI, Consumer Price Index. You take the other series and mm -hmm. you deflate it with a considerably milder implicit price deflator. You call one of them real output per worker hour and you call the other one real compensation. Looks like they've both been inflation adjusted, except that I can now show you on another chart the huge divergence between the CPI and the implicit price deflator that you're using. You're using two very divergent mm -hmm. sets of price deflators. That's why it happened. And, and, and now you might say that's an interesting story in itself, but isn't it just simpler to take out the price deflators? Look at the nominal figures from year to year, the nominal value of the output, the nominal value of the compensation, and you find that the increases are tracking each other. That was my simple solution to that. Therefore, you didn't quite do justice to it. It was divergent, very different. You're using two sets of books. It, it, it's, it's that level of dishonesty. Two different price deflators. So that's the, and as I said, I showed charts where I said, here are the nominal numbers and they're tracking each other. Yeah, and yeah. So I said something. There. So that's the explanation, Bob. And then, and I don't know, look, it started in like 70, 1973, which of course is when the CPI began to really take off and the implicit price deflator, the, the goods that they're producing, which by the way, not final goods, was much milder in the 70s. But you could say, hey, who was in charge then? Nixon. No, no, Nixon's a, a Republican bastard. See, you might start blaming it on him uh, if you want. But 
my again, my point is that it's two divergent price deflators that are being used. And the simplest thing to do is to just turn them into nominal numbers. And you find that it simply didn't happen, that that compensation pretty much has tracked productivity up to the present day. That's my point. Uh, but I guess what, Bob, you, you shut me down. Where are we going from here? I guess we've pretty much insulted Orrin enough. I guess I've insulted you uh, yeah, more than enough. I think- and not, go ahead, go ahead, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly do not need you to insult me more. I think if we're in terms of marginal analysis, Bob, we're Bob. good. On your point, you're, you're right. We'll take it now, but I just want to make sure because your story would still have to explain why did the CPI deflator and the whatever, the GDP deflator, why did they tracked the 50s and 60s? And then for some reason, the early 70s, that's when huge, the CPI huge, started. It's, huge, which, huge, duh, makes, one makes sense. Off, one of them, right. it was, yeah, now, you, you don't, right. you're right that we'd have to explain we might want to explain that on one level. I'm only saying, though, that it's sufficient onto the day, onto the analysis to say, I'm taking nominal numbers year by year, and I'm lining them up. I'm uh, nominal. Right, right, right. The, the, it, after all, this, each year they're selling the output in nominal dollars, and they're getting paid in nominal dollars. I'm lining up the right, nominal right, dollars. Right, yeah. no, I can make it complicated. In those charts, and maybe folks, I'll try to get an example and flash it up on the screen yeah. here at, yeah. earlier. Yeah. So now, like, I'm referring to something that already happened from their point of view, but for you and me, Gene, it's still the future. Yeah. That the the gra- the gap keeps growing. So you're right. So after a while, it's like, so you're saying you can hire a worker for ten dollars and he'll give you eighteen dollars worth of output. So that seems like a big arbitrage. Well, and, for, so well, obviously that can't be true. You know, Brent Brent Malton said just jokingly. They don't but we draw that large yes go. The exploitation rate has gone through the roof. And that they're not the least bit yep. curious to, to look for it. It didn't go right. anywhere, is the truth. Right. The fact of the matter, it's all a figment of the pricing index. And as I say, what I show when I display it is I show the CPI and the prison price deflator and how different they look. But Bob, since we're drawing to an end, I want to say what a fan I am of your show. That could be the kiss of death, because you see what a wordy, garrulous, Talmudic kind of mind I have, and you appeal to my kind of audience, a, a small fraction of the population, um, who, who love the way you think, the way you carefully go over issues, the way you're self-critical, the way you think things through, and you at your best are a must-listen, and you're off at your best. I want you to know that. You admit when you're wrong, almost to a fault, and that helps too. And I've learned a lot from you over the years. And I hope to continue to learn even more from you. And I've heard, I hope you've learned a few things from me this afternoon. Yes, I have. I appreciate those remarks. And I certainly enjoy your desire to get things right and not being afraid to ruffle feathers. So and I mean that sincerely. Yeah. Do you want to give the folks any guidance as to what you have at your, the Soho Forum before we sign off? I guess this will be, we, we, we're, having in, we're having a debate this coming, as we're broadcasting this, we're having a debate on school choice, but I probably, we're going to miss it, uh, where Corey DeAngelis, who really is the big doyen of school choice, and, the, and who's been, uh, of course, saving the success of the school choice movement nationwide, is being uh, opposed by Stefan Kinsella. And Stefan represents this sort of Ludwig von Mises wing believes that that this government-run school choice is a kind of a, a, a Faustian bargain, a pact with the devil, that clearly it's government financed. Mm-hmm. Not so much that people are being forced 
to pay for it. Is Stevens' argument is that once you get let the government in the door with your school choice and they're monitoring your charter schools, then maybe it's not such a good idea. And so that's going to be the debate this mm-hmm. coming Monday. By the time this is broadcast, I guess that debate will be on video and audio. All our debates going back years are on video and audio. My debate on socialism has surpassed 6 million YouTube views. Uh, some others have, have done well. You've done a couple of very good debates, Bob. You once asked me, why do you think you lost that debate? And you know, remember, Bob, you asked me that question. And I realized much later what the answer was. The answer was that you waited too late to make your killer point. It's true, but that okay. is fine. That's true, abstract. I'm not going to get into that. But the point is, in any case, we've got many debates. And then in September, we have a debate between Yarrow Brook and Brian Kappa, a knockdown, dragging out slugfest on the nature of anarcho capitalism. Yarrow Brook hates okay. people like you, Bob, and Caps. He hates, he thinks that you people are really retrograde and not being worthy of being called libertarians. And but he's basically a nice guy. He's not going to shoot you. And Brian mm-hmm. Kaplan is an ANCAP, as you probably know. So he's going to defend sure. anarcho capitalism. Mm-hmm. That's in September. I recommend that p- people, by the time they, they listen to this, they go on our website and look up our debates. The debate about school choice, which I think is an interesting one, uh, will be posted by then. And then the debate on ANCAP is in September. Come to town. Come to New York City. Where are you situated now, Bobby? In Florida. No, I'm still in Massachusetts. Of course, I'm sorry. You're in Massachusetts. Bob, you've got you've taken so much abuse from me today that I want to make it up mm-hmm. to you and say that any number of free tickets you want to the Solar Forum will be yours on request. Bring that brilliant oh, young boy, young son of yours, who's now 18, right? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, he's eight. Yeah, oldest is 18. Yep. You should bring him to the, some of those debates, Bob. But what's the is he in college? Is he in high school still? What to it? Yeah, he's just going to college. Oh, that's great. All right, Bob. I guess we'll sign off. It's been a pleasure. Okay, so folks, my guest this week has been Gene Epstein. Yeah. So, Gene, as always, it was enjoyable and pugilistic, and so I had fun and I, I did learn a lot. So, thank you for your time, Bob. You're great, and 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 again, you're still one of my favorite living economists. <laughs> That's my final word to you, Bob. Thanks again. Okay, I appreciate it. All right, thanks. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com. <laughs>